I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to two passages of Scripture. The first in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. We'll be considering verses 4 through 9 and also a parallel passage in a sense in John chapter 3. So if you'll make your way to Numbers 21, I'll be there with you here in just a moment as we continue today in great stories from God's Word. The message is entitled, Look to Jesus and Live. A little bit of backstory about what was taking place at this point in the history of the nation of Israel. God's people as a nation found themselves in bondage in Egypt for some 400 years. God provided for miraculous delivery for them through the plagues and also the Red Sea crossing where he parted the waters miraculously and they went through. They began their journey toward the promised land that God told them they were going to possess. Through that journey, they experienced many difficulties and hardships, and they began to complain. And they grew impatient with their leaders because of the circumstances that they found themselves in, and they also became impatient with what God was doing in their midst. Through it all, a man named Moses continued to walk closely with God. He drew near to God when times were most difficult and when the circumstances seemed the darkest, and he depended on God for all things. The specific context for the first passage that we're considering today in Numbers 21 is that Edom denied Israel passage through their land on the way to the promised land. They were headed in a northwestern direction toward Canaan, And God told Moses, because of Edom denying them passage, not to fight against the nation, but to turn to the southeast. And when they turned to the southeast, they entered into a very difficult part of the wilderness. And as a result of that, the people began to complain. They were in sandy desert, and things were getting worse rather than better. And yet God was going to be faithful to them, but they just couldn't see it. And they began to speak against the Lord and against their circumstances. Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. And then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Even though God provided manna, and even though God watched over them at every move they made during this journey, they still became impatient and began to complain against the Lord. They described the food that they had as wretched or miserable. They were disgusted by it. They were ungrateful for what God had provided. 
And I want you to understand today that nothing that is provided for you will be satisfying if your heart is not right with God. If you're not spiritually in a place where you're depending on God and you're believing in Him and you're trusting in Him, then nothing that is provided for you will ultimately satisfy your soul. In judgment, God sent fiery serpents in the midst of the people. Now, this part of the desert near the head of the Gulf of Aqaba is even today infested with venomous reptiles. Lawrence of Arabia, early in the 20th century, about 3,300 years after Moses and the children of Israel made their great journey through the wilderness, traveled through this same territory, the same terrain. And here's what he had to say about it. This is a place of hopelessness and sadness deeper than all the open desert we had crossed. There was something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted land, proliferant of salt water and barren palms and bushes, which neither served for grazing nor for firewood. He said that even the bravest men among them did not want to walk in the camp in the darkness of night for fear of the snakes that were there when they journeyed through this same region of the desert. Now, this is a reference here to these burning or fiery serpents that ultimately shows us that it's something about what God is doing because God was bringing judgment upon them. So they come to Moses and they plead for relief and God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent, a copper serpent, and to put it on a pole. And he was to put a figure of this serpent in brass and and elevated on a pole or a standard so that when it was raised high, people from the furthest distance in the camp could see it, and when they looked at it, they would live. Now, let's just pause for a moment and say, admittedly, this is a very peculiar story. And not only is this a very peculiar story, it's a very frightening story for those of us who do not like snakes to begin with. And it's a reminder of just how much we all need the Lord. After all, there had been the detestable events of the fall of man in which a serpent, the devil himself, was the infiltrator and sin entered into the world. One of the Ten Commandments was not to make a graven image. Uh, Aaron had made a golden calf when the people grew impatient with God and they worshipped it while Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God. So this is just a strange story. But I think in the midst of the strangeness and the peculiarities of the story, we can see God's love shining through and how he still intervened on behalf of a people who were not deserving. And that's what we're going to see about ourselves as well. And the first truth I want to show you here is a pronouncement of judgment. And that is the consequence of sin against God is the penalty of death. The consequence of sin against God is the penalty of death. The people were dying in the wilderness because of their sin. Now, they had long complained against God. They had long taken the goodness of God for granted. God delivered them. He provided for them. He was patient with them, yet it was still not enough. So God sends judgment in the form of deadly snakes in their midst. They essentially had blasphemed God when they spoke in the way that they did about what God had provided. They, they were so ungrateful for the generosity of the Lord, and they lacked patience is what the Scripture says. And you might remember, ironically, the situation they were in was because of a lack of faith to begin with. 
They had sent spies into the promised land. The spies came back from the promised land. Ten of those spies said, oh, we are like just grasshoppers in the sight of these people. There are giants in the land. There are these major cities. There are formidable foes, and we cannot come up against this great enemy. And you recall there are only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, who came back and said, oh, this is a good land that God has promised. And they believed that they could take the land because of God's presence in their midst. But here they are now growing impatient, having a lack of faith, speaking without reverence toward God, questioning God's plan, saying we should have just stayed in Egypt, doubting God's ability to provide. There's no food or water here. And it's easy for us to step back and say, well, how foolish could these people be? Look at all that God had done for them. How could they have been so impatient? How could they have said the things that they said about what God had provided? How could it be that they were not grateful? And then we survey our own lives. And if we're honest, we'll admit that there have been times in our lives where we have done the same. Where we have questioned the circumstances that we were in. Not in a worshipful, prayerful kind of a way but in an accusatory, angry type of way toward God. Maybe somebody in this place today is struggling with such a circumstance, and you're frustrated with God because of what's going on. You're saying, God, how could you be doing this to me? Why am I having to suffer this circumstance? Why are things as bad as they are? Why do I find myself in such a dark place? And you're pushing back against God rather than running toward God for your hope. And if that's the case, friend, you're in the same circumstance that these people were in in terms of their response to God. God certainly expects us to bring our concerns to him, but we should do so as the psalmist did. We can be honest to God. We can cry out to God. We can plead with God. We can tell God what's on our hearts, but we're doing so with a heart of faith. And we're saying, God, even though we can't see the way of deliverance, we believe that you are still good. Just as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that should be the attitude of our hearts and our response to God. But here they were, having placed themselves under judgment. Because the penalty for sin is death. We are sinners by nature, but we have all sinned against God by choice repeatedly. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, there is no one who is righteous. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. You see, this was the penalty that God had exacted because of the rebellion of man. And this is just an expression of it here as judgment is coming upon these people in a very temporal way. And it reminds us that in the pronouncement of judgment, what we really need is a word of hope. And that's what we find here because the answer, secondly, for the consequence of sin against God is the provision of grace. So we move here from the pronouncement of judgment to a word of hope. And the people who were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness could do absolutely nothing for themselves. Can you imagine the chaos that was taking place in the camp? There are people dropping dead right and left. They're burning from these venomous snakes that have bitten them. There was probably crying and chaos and wailing that was going on in the camp. 
And what they needed was a word of hope. And if God did not provide the way for them to live, they would have all died. But yet God stepped in. And when they recognized what they had done, they appealed to their leader, Moses, and he interceded to God on their behalf. And God told him, you make this image of a bronze snake and you put it on a pole and whoever looks at it will live. There's a powerful lesson here that we must not miss. Under the consequence of sin, people have no answer on their own. Under the penalty of death, none of us can bring ourselves to life. But God provided a solution that defied all human explanation. And whatever we make of this peculiar story, what is clear here is that the snakes are the judgment of God. And were it not for the grace of God intervening on their behalf, all of them would have perished. And thankfully, Jesus gives us just a little bit more commentary on this very passage in John chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15. And notice what he says. He's speaking here in the context to Nicodemus, the religious leader. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus took the story and he applied it to himself. And he speaks here of himself being lifted up. Now, Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews who was a person who recognized that Jesus was a teacher. He would have been known, Nicodemus, as a good man, as a religious man. But apart from God's forgiveness, he was not a righteous man. So even good people, who may be even religious people, are in need of a Savior. You see, that's the faulty thinking of the religion of the world, is that somehow people can do something to make themselves right with God. Christianity stands alone in the world among all of the religions and all of the teachings to say that it's not something that people do. It is something that God does. It's not something that people could do. It is something that God has already done. And this is where we come to our understanding of the provision of God's grace. And there are several ways that the symbol in the wilderness compares to Jesus The answer for our sin is from God. And the cross on which Jesus was lifted up is God's answer for our sin. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. The answer is not found in man's wisdom for the problem of sin. The answer is not found in religious philosophy for the problem of sin. The answer is not found in human philosophy or human education for the problem of sin. The answer is found in God and God alone. Because it's God that even though we are under the consequence of sin, even though we are deserving of the penalty of spiritual death and ultimately physical death and separation from God, God steps in and he provides the means of grace so that we might live. 
And Jesus took that curse upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. The answer from God is all that we need. They were not to add anything to what God prescribed in the wilderness. They were just to look to the way of deliverance, which was looking beyond the symbol to God himself. We cannot add anything to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we look not to the cross itself, but we look to the one who died on the cross so that our sins might be forgiven. The one who was buried in a borrowed tomb. The one who was raised in power on the third day. The one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. We look to him so that we can live because he is God's grace for us. And our good works are never added to the cross of Christ for our salvation. That would be an affront to God. And it would say that the cross was unnecessary. But the answer for the consequence of sin against God is the provision of grace. So, there's a pronouncement of judgment. And then there's a word of hope. And then finally, we come to a call to faith. The way to receive God's provision of grace is the power of the gospel. The way to receive God's provision of grace is the power of the gospel. God could have removed those venomous snakes that were there in the camp, but he did not. There's a mystery in that, in a sense. What he did in the midst of it, though, was that he provided the only way of deliverance. God could, in this moment, remove sin from the world, and he will ultimately. But by his providence, he has not. But what he has done is he has provided the way for deliverance in Jesus. In the wilderness, they were to look at the pole and live. And today, we look to Jesus, and by faith, we live. And the point is, our faith is in God, not the symbol itself. And each time John used the phrase, the Son of Man must be lifted up in the gospel, it was in reference to what he did on the cross. John chapter 8 and verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. John chapter 12 and verse 32, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The cross was necessary because sin had to be atoned for. God is a holy God, and God will not turn a blind eye to sin. God will not ignore sin. Either he will provide the substitute so that our sins can be taken from us and that we can be forgiven and receive him through the power of the gospel, or we will have to bear the penalty for our own sins in a place the Bible calls hell. That's how God designed it. And he is our hope. And the cross was necessary to satisfy the perfect justice of God and Even as we sang in the song a few moments ago, the wrath of God was upon Jesus. And it's in Christ alone that we're forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So I tell you today, the answer from God is the only answer that we need. When they were there in the midst of that wilderness and those snakes were crawling and there were people being bitten and they were dying and they were dropping left and right and they were crying out in agony, all they had to do was look to the way of deliverance that God had provided. 
And I want you to understand today that there is a place that all people who don't know Christ will eternally abide in, and that is the place called hell. And in that place called hell, there will be people who will be crying out for deliverance. They will be in agony because of their separation from God and because they're bearing the penalty for their own sins. And had they only looked to Christ, they'd not had to go that way. And friend, I'm telling you, there is deliverance in Jesus And the answer from God is all that we need because he's a good God and he loves us and he wants us to know him and walk with him by faith. I love the story of the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon's conversion because in it he references the very idea of what we're considering here today. The day was January 6, 1850 and Spurgeon was not quite 16 years old. He tells the story of his conversion in his, uh, in his autobiography. And, and he said, I sometimes think I might have been in the darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, uh, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text And the preacher began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look into me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, and there's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look into me. Spurgeon said, then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating in great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at my father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he'd gone to about that length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon said, well, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow because it struck right at home. And he continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in all of life, Miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you will obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. He said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed that night by one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and people only looked and were healed, so it was me. I'd been looking to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, 
What a charming word it seemed to me. And I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. And then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Here's the message to me and to you. All who look to Jesus will live. Look to Jesus and live. That's the message. That's the hope that every sinner who looks to Jesus will live because he will deliver us. And I love the way Pink puts it in his exposition of the Gospel of John. Man became a lost sinner by a look. For the first recorded thing that Eve did in connection with the fall was that she saw the tree was good for food. And in like manner, the lost sinner is saved by a look. The Christian life begins by looking. Looking to me, all you who are saved, all the ends of the earth. The Christian life continues by looking. Let us run with endurance the pace that is set before us, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And we're looking to Jesus for our salvation and we're expecting that he's going to return. And that's the hope that we have, that we can look to Jesus and live. So I ask you this, have you looked to Jesus in faith and been saved? It's a simple question, but it's the most important question you'll ever answer in all of eternity. Have you looked to Jesus for life? As many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Look to Jesus and live. If you haven't, you could be like old Charles Spurgeon was. You might have just come here and thought, I'm going to try that church out today. Uh, Something's going on in my life and I think I need to go to church. Maybe he came at the invitation of a friend. Maybe he came just to check things out and see what it was like. And God brought you here for this moment in this hour on this day to save your soul. What a blessing it would be for you to look to Jesus and live. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Here in just a few moments after I pray, I'm going to read the passage of Scripture from Mark's account in his gospel of the first Lord's Supper. And then we're going to partake of these elements. Now let me tell you, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're preparing for this time, this is a very important time because it's a reminder of what Christ has done for us and then we can look to Him and live. So as I pray, would you prepare your soul for this very important time of worship and obedience to Jesus? Father, you're our deliverer. We can look in a lot of places for hope. And we'll not find it apart from you. But we can look to you and we can live. We can have eternal life. I rejoice with my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here today. Who know Jesus as their Savior. Who have the hope that I have because of the gospel. 
I pray now, if there are any under the sound of my voice who don't have that hope, that they would look to Jesus and live, that they would understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and they'd be willing to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved. I pray in this moment you would save souls for eternity. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship you in just a moment, I pray that our hands would be clean and our hearts would be pure as we come to this table, that we'd not be like the people that the Apostle Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 11, who came unprepared and with impure motives to the table and suffered the consequences for it. Help us to come because of your grace and the standing that we have in the righteousness of Jesus and exalt him in this time. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.